Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to take a little break on this Lord's Day morning from our consideration of the Gospel of Mark, and instead we're going to consider a passage from the first epistle of John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That'll be my sermon text today. But I want to start reading at chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, we need to remember that the chapter and verse divisions were added later. They are not inspired. The text itself is inspired by God. Uh, and so sometimes the chapter and verse divisions come in unfortunate places. And, and so John's, uh, John's flow of thought here, we need to understand his flow of thought. So I begin with chapter 1, verse 5, and read through chapter 2, verse 2. Let us hear God's holy word. 1 John 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for God to bless the preaching of His Word. Gracious Lord and Father in heaven, sovereign and eternal God, we pray once again that by your spirit, indeed, the seed of your word, which is cast uh, today through the preaching of your word, would find a lodging place in our souls. We pray that by your spirit, you would make our hearts good soil so that the seed of your word would take deep root in our hearts and bear spiritual fruit in our lives, fruit that brings glory to your name and bears faithful testimony to the Lordship of Christ. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, dear ones, as you see, uh, the title of my sermon today is Our Advocate. And there's quite a number of keywords you can listen for if you find that to be helpful. I would especially encourage you to listen for the words sin, salvation, Advocate and propitiation. Well, dear ones, let me ask you a question and think about this question. How does Satan seek to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does Satan seek to destroy or at least to weaken and compromise the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, dear ones, Satan and the ungodly world system that are under his sway, they, of course, hate the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would love nothing more than to see true, faithful, visible churches of Christ destroyed or at least weakened and compromised. Well, there are basically two major methods that Satan uses in seeking to destroy Christ's body, the church. 
The first is persecution. He incites persecution against the church by ungodly forces outside of the church. And those ungodly forces can include such things as godless governments that are hostile in their policies toward the church, or we might think of false religions that that uh, garner their, their efforts to uh, persecute and, and weaken the church. We also might even think of pressures brought on by the unbelieving family members of those within the church. But the second method is, I think, in the course of, of hum, uh, church history, the second method has often proven to be more effective. And that is the method of fomenting division, schism, and heresy within the church. One method that Satan uses, it comes from outside the church through persecution. But another method comes from within the church through division, schism, and heresy. Some of the epistles or letters in the New Testament scriptures were written to encourage and to strengthen churches that were facing persecution from the unbelieving world. Those epistles would include such letters as uh, as Hebrews, Hebrews being written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing severe persecution for their faith and who were tempted to deny Christ and go back to their Judaism. Or we think of First Peter, First Peter written to a group of, of Christians who, who faced a fiery trial of persecution. But the Apostle John's first letter, his first epistle known to us today as First John, was written to a church or a group of churches under John's apostolic care and which Satan had mightily attacked and destabilized through those whom John describes in chapter 2.18 as antichrists. In chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 John, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared From this we know that it is the last hour. And as an aside, notice that John, this this epistle was written in the first century. And uh, and John says, writing from the perspective of the first century, it is the last hour. The last days are already upon us. They've been with us since the first uh, century. In any case, these so-called antichrists that John describes were schismatic heretics and false teachers who had previously belonged to the Johannine church or community of churches, but who had abandoned the orthodox apostolic gospel and had separated themselves from the church and who were threatening to draw even more church members away from the biblical gospel, away from Christ's true church and into their own newly formed heretical sect. As John writes in chapter 2, verse 19, describing these antichrists, these false teachers, he says, They went out from us, they left us, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. These are not uh, former Christians who, uh, or professing Christians who leave one Christian church to, uh, to unite with another Christian church. These were heretics and schismatics who left the church altogether to form their own heretical a sect. Now, these schismatics, these uh, these heretics who left the church, did not merely differ with the believers within John's church over over some secondary, non-essential points of doctrine, some points of doctrine that that don't strike at the vitals of of true faith. No, friends, their heresy was an attack 
upon some of the core truths of the biblical gospel. As you study and, and read 1 John, it, it becomes clear as, you, as we seek to discern the original setting, the original circumstances that led John under the Spirit's inspiration to pen this, this epistle, we, we find that their, their heresy included such things as denying the true or full humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. They denied the humanity of Christ because in their view, uh, human flesh, the, the material world and human flesh were evil and sinful. And certainly the, the divine Christ would not take upon himself dirty, filthy, sinful human flesh. That was their, uh, their view. And if Christ is not truly incarnate, then he could not have died upon the cross as a propitiation and atonement for our sins. Now, on the last Lord's Day eve afternoon, I almost said evening, but we had our afternoon service last Lord's Day after the fellowship meal. Uh, on the last Lord's Day afternoon, we focused especially on 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And we considered what John means when he describes God as light, along with what it means to walk in the light instead of walking in the darkness. As it says back in chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we, meaning we apostles, have heard from him, from Jesus, and we announce it to you. What is the message? That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice uh, the truth. Now, on the last Lord's Day, I made the case that God's character as light points especially to the fact that God in his being is truth. He is the living truth. He is light in the sense that he is the truth, the living truth, the divine source of all truth. And therefore, I sought to make the case that walking in the light refers primarily to living by faith in Christ and faith in the truths of the gospel message. Contrary to what we're, what were likely the claims of the false teachers to be without sin, John reminds his readers that sin is still a present reality in our lives as believers. He's writing to Christians when he says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, I thought we were saved, Pastor. Yes, we are saved by grace. We are forgiven by our sins. But in this present life, the sin principle is still there within us. We still wrestle. The flesh wrestles against the spirit uh, and so forth. We have this inner conflict because uh, the sin nature continues to abide in us. It is pardoned and mortified in Christ, and yet it is still there, and it often rears its ugly head. Praise God, one day when we go to be with the Lord, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. But in this present life, we still have sin to contend with. The heretics apparently thought and made the claim that we are without sin. We are without sin. And so, contrary to that, John reminds us, that sin is still a present reality in our lives. But then he seeks to further settle and strengthen the faith of these believers by reminding them that for those of us who by grace walk in the light through living by faith in Jesus Christ, for those of us who trust in Christ, abide in Christ, rest in him for our salvation, we are told that the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin, as it says in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship 
with one another. We are one body. We have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And praise God, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Continues to cleanse us from all sin. And just as an aside, you know, there's this tendency uh, in the evangelical world, and, and even you find this sometimes in Reformed in the Reformed world, this, there's this tendency to think that, well, the gospel is for the lost. The gospel is for unbelievers. They need to hear the gospel so that they can come to faith in Christ and be saved. And they certainly must hear the gospel. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I need the gospel too. There's this tendency to say, well, we'll tack the gospel on at the end of a sermon, you know, if, in case there's any unsaved people and unbelievers in our midst. But the, the core of once, once you come to Christ, once you are cleansed from your sin through the blood of Jesus and converted, then it's time to get busy living the Christian life. And so for you who are converted, we're going to preach Christian life sermons and focus on what you must do and your duty and, and steps to having a happy marriage and steps to being a, a good financial steward and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. Certainly, the Bible addresses these things, and there is a place for preaching the Christian life. But we, brothers and sisters, we too continue to need the gospel. Do you, dear Christian, do you continue to need the good news that your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus? I don't know about you. I continue to need that good news because I'm still a sinner, and so are you. So praise God if we walk in the light by abiding in Christ, resting and trusting Him as our Lord and Savior. He continues to cleanse us from our sins. We continue to receive good news. The good news is for Christians, too, is the point I'm trying to make. Now, getting back to our text, John also encourages his readers with the truth that because of what Jesus has done, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from our sins if we confess our sins, as it says in verses 7 through 9. Now, this brings us to our passage for today in chapter 2, as John continues uh, to the flow of his thought here in chapter 2, verse 1. And so the, the first point I'd like to make, beloved, let's consider, first of all, that the saving work of Christ does not excuse our sin, but rather motivates our grateful obedience. The saving work of Christ does not excuse our sin, but rather motivates our grateful obedience. One of the biggest concerns that was raised in the days of the Reformation when Martin Luther, by the grace of God, rediscovered uh, the truth, the biblical truth of our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of the biggest concerns raised by uh, his Roman Catholic objectors is that, well, you know, if we're if we're justified, declared righteous before God and made right with God by simple trust, simple faith in Christ apart from works, then, well, that's going to lead to all kinds of of sin. People are going to say, well, hey, I believe in Jesus so I can go sin up a storm free from the law. Oh, blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. Right. That it would lead to that kind of an, an attitude uh, to which Luther, like Paul, would say, God forbid You see, to be justified by faith is the greatest incentive to holiness. God has freely, mercifully forgiven our sins through the blood of Christ. What greater motivation is there to to express gratitude to God and seek to walk after 
a new obedience. I've sometimes used this illustration. Let's say that you're out on the beach, okay? And, uh, you know, I, if you're a, a beach person and loves to do that, uh, and let's say that you take a, take a swim out in the ocean. And let's say that, uh, that there's a strong undercurrent that you weren't expecting that takes you out and you start struggling to get back to the land and you can't get back and you start to wear out. You start to get tired as the land goes, seems to go further and further away and you start to swallow the water. You're starting to drown. And just as you're about to go down for the last time, finally, a lifeguard gets you, pulls you to shore and saves your life. Now, what are you going to do? in response to that lifeguard who just saved your life. Are you going to stand up and say, how dare you, and, and clock the fella in the, in the nose? Of course not. Your heart is going to be filled with gratitude. You're going to say, thank you so much for rescuing me. I, I couldn't have saved myself. I, I needed to be rescued. And of course, we're not just drowning in sin. We are dead in sin apart from grace. So Christ not only rescues us from drowning, He raises us spiritually from the dead. The appropriate response to God's amazing, justifying grace is gratitude and grateful obedience. So justification by faith alone and our full and free forgiveness in Christ is not an excuse for sin, but it is a motivation for grateful obedience to, in the language of our uh, confessional standards, it is our motivation to walk after a new obedience. As John writes in verse chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What has he just discussed? He's just discussed how, look, we're all sinners. If you say you have no sin, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're calling God a liar because God says you're a sinner and so am I. Meaning you've missed the mark. You don't live up to God's holy standard as you ought. And notice how he addresses uh, his readers. He says, my little children. This is a tender address. And, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring John to write this. This is the Father's attitude towards us. It is tender. It is kind. It is pastoral. My little children. Oh, notice the fatherly affection there. My little children, I am writing these things to you. He's, he's giving them the purpose. One of the purposes, at least, of why he's writing this epistle. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not... Sin. God's mercy to us in Christ is not a license for us to continue in unrepentant sin. As John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, beloved, again, the recognition that the sin principle continues to be present in all of us as believers this side of glory, as John reminds us back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, And that God continues to forgive us by the blood of Jesus, his son, as we confess our sins, as stated back in chapter one, verse nine. This is not to be interpreted to mean or misinterpreted to mean that we can relax and take a casual attitude about our remaining sin. On the contrary, the implication of what John is saying is that we believers ought to respond to God's forgiving mercy in Christ by a vigorous Fight against sin by a grateful obedience out of gratitude for God's gift of salvation to us in Christ. Believer, you have been saved by God's sovereign grace. Earlier in the service, I forgot to give the declaration of pardon, and I apologize for that. And that's very important, though. 
Because you and I need to hear week in and week out that because of Christ and as we rest in him for salvation from sin, God continues to assure you and me through his word. Believer, your sins are forgiven through Jesus, through Jesus, your Lord. And this passage is one such assurance of pardon to those who are repentant and believing. Believer, you've been saved by God's sovereign grace through God-given trust in Christ and Christ alone. Your appropriate response to God's amazing grace is to seek to live a life of grateful obedience. We all stumble. We all fall. We all will continue to fight and, and sometimes stumble and fall. But let us not use the ongoing presence of the sin principle in our lives as a license for sin or as an excuse to be casual and laid back about remaining sin in our life. Instead, view sin as a mortal enemy that you must strive to defeat at all costs. And you can't defeat sin in your own power. So recognizing our sin drives us back to Christ and drives us back to the resources of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit. And it urges us on to hide God's Word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. But what happens if we do sin? And indeed, we will. Well, notice what it says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but, or and, if anyone sins, too bad, you had your chance. No. If anyone sins, Not we had, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is good news. Christian, you have an advocate in heaven interceding for you. An advocate who shed his blood for you. An advocate who has loved you with an everlasting love. While John counsels against sin... He acknowledges that sin, and this implies even serious sin, is a real possibility for the Christian this side of glory. What is the meaning of this term advocate? Well, Bible scholar Leon Morris explains, he says, advocate is a term with a legal ring about it, and it often indicates the counsel for the defense. It is the friend at court. The use of the term shows that the sinner is in no good case. He is in the wrong with the Father and needs help. It is not without its interest that Christ is called the righteous. We might have expected the merciful or the like, but it is consistent New Testament teaching that God forgives in a way that accords with justice. Forgiveness does not abrogate the moral law, but establishes it. God is merciful and gracious and loving, but He's also holy and righteous and just. His holy, righteous character demands that sin be punished. God would be unjust and unrighteous if He just ignored our sins. Some say, well, why can't God just forgive and just you know, pretend He didn't see it? Because then He would be unjust. Our forgiveness must be grounded in satisfying the righteous demands of the Father. You know, it's interesting that in our culture, in our legal culture today, it's interesting that wealthy, powerful, and well-connected members of our society will often seek out a so-called dream team of lawyers if they happen to get into trouble with the law. 
Because of their wealth, they're able to hire the best and the brightest lawyers to serve as their defense team, their advocates, if you will, in court. However, beloved, no dream team on earth could ever plead for the souls of sinners before the judgment bar of the infinitely holy and righteous God of the universe. But nevertheless, there is an advocate. We have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the perfect advocate, the perfect defense attorney before the Father in heaven. And he always wins his case on behalf of his people, for he has paid their penalty for sin and perfectly satisfied the demands of the Father's justice on their behalf. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your advocate before the Father? In the gospel, he offers his services to you. He offers his advocacy to you in the gospel. Believe on him and you can know that he is your advocate before the Father. And we are also to take comfort in noticing that Jesus Christ is described as the righteous one because we are unrighteous in ourselves. We are unrighteous before the Father. And I like to say to people, you know, heaven is a perfect place. God is a perfect God. You need a perfect righteousness to get into heaven. And guess what? None of us has it in ourselves because we are sinners. We've fallen short. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Jesus Christ offers in the gospel that perfect everlasting righteousness that serves as our title to heaven. Not only does he forgive our sins through his blood, through his atonement, but he credits to us, he imputes to us his perfect everlasting righteousness. And that and that alone serves as our title to heaven. It's not Jesus' righteousness plus our best efforts. It's not a Jesus plus thing. It's a Jesus only thing. Whenever you start adding on to Jesus, whenever you say, yeah, Jesus is great, but we need Jesus plus, then you've lost the gospel. Period. There's no Jesus plus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And he is the righteous one. Christ satisfied the righteous demands of God the Father in our stead, in our place. As the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, let me get there first. Sorry, these pages are very thin, hard to turn. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all. He made that payment. He offered that sacrifice once and for all and forever. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. Jesus is the just. We are the unjust. But Jesus died the just in the place of and, and to redeem the, we who are unjust so that in Him, in union with Him, we might be justified before the Father. This is the essence of the good news. His righteousness covers our unrighteousness. And that brings me to my final point based on verse 2. Notice next, uh, beloved, that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Verse 2. We have an advocate with the Father, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, here we have a word that we don't typically use in our daily, uh, our daily uh, lingo, our daily language and conversation. How often do you use the word 
propitiate or propitiation in your daily conversations. But it's a very important theological word. Now, in some translations, translated as expiate, and I'll explain that in a moment. But what we have here is the nature of Christ's atonement being explained. It is a propitiation and not a mere expiation. Well, Pastor, what's the difference? Well, that word propitiate, the word propitiate could also be translated in a sense to satisfy. Propitiate means to appease the wrath of an offended party. You offend someone and, uh, and they're angry with you. You propitiate them by, by satisfying their anger so that they will forgive you. Now, in the case of God, this is not a bribe, but rather it is a satisfaction of the demands of God's holy justice. And where was God's justice satisfied? On the cross of Calvary. Christ, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, died in our place, in our stead, in order to satisfy the Father's righteous wrath against our sin because he died in our place, in our stead. Whereas the word expiate, this is more of the idea of putting away sin from the life of the believer. Now, certainly, Jesus' atonement on the cross does both. It, it expiates our sin. It, it removes it from us, puts it away from us. But it also propitiates or satisfies the demands of the Father's justice. While some translations translate the Greek word, which is helasmos, as expiation, it seems to me that the weight of evidence supports translating this term as propitiation, given the context of this passage. After all, Jesus' atoning death does not merely cover or put away our sins, but praise God it does that, but it doesn't only do that. It also had the effect of satisfying the just demands of God's holy wrath against our sins. And by the way, to um, counteract a, uh, a, a slander against the uh, biblical doctrine of substitutionary atonement that I'm speaking of today, uh, sometimes those of a, a more liberal theological bent will say, well, this whole idea of substitutionary atonement means that, that Jesus had to die to make an angry God loving. But that totally misses the fact that the Bible says that the Father, out of love for sinners, sent his Son to propitiate the demands of his own wrath. So it was the Father's love that motivated him to send his Son. Jesus didn't die to make an angry God loving. God was angry with us for our sin, but it was God's, the Father's love that moved him to send Christ to be our Savior. And Christ voluntarily and willingly came uh, to propitiate the wrath of his father. Now, this passage also touches upon the issue of the extent of the atonement. For whom did Jesus do this? We are told that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The term are there probably meaning John is speaking of himself and, and of the churches under his apostolic oversight. But he wants to remind them that, that you know, it wasn't just for you guys in my churches that uh, that Jesus died, that he offered himself as a propitiation, but also for those of the whole world. Now, advocates of uh, the doctrine of universal atonement will appeal to this verse as one of the strongest proofs for their position, along with passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And the doctrine of universal atonement says that that Jesus did this, that he offered himself 
on the cross to atone for the sins, to be a propitiation for the sins of everyone without exception. Not just, uh, not just for those who come to believe, but even for folks like Pharaoh uh, and, and Judas Iscariot and so forth. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the things to realize is that when the Bible uses the term world, it doesn't always mean every last person without exception. It often means all kinds or all categories of people. And in the New Testament, that includes not just Jews who come to believe in Jesus, but Gentiles as well who come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when we compare this verse to how John depicts the redemptive work of Christ in this picture of heavenly worship that is recorded in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, we can infer that world here must mean not just people under John's apostolic influence, but also people from all over the world. Look with me, if you would, at Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. What what we're doing now is we're comparing Scripture with Scripture. Whenever there's a question of, well, how do we understand this term world? How is John using this term? We not only need to look at the immediate context and consider the background uh, uh, historical background to what he's writing, we also need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. And this also, I believe, the book of Revelation was penned by the Apostle John under the Spirit's inspiration. And he writes this. Again, we have a picture of heavenly worship of the Lord Jesus. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, notice they don't say they don't say, Lord, you purchased everyone without exception from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. But no, you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so, friends, again, uh, this, uh, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, our passage for today, when we consider more carefully what's going on here, I would, add, I would, I would suggest does not uh, teach universal atonement, but rather that Christ's death has universal ramifications. It, it is a death that redeems folks from all over the world who by sovereign grace come to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And friends, as we wrap up our time in the Word today and and prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together, I would point out that the doctrine of universal atonement actually undermines the good news of Jesus. But think about the implications of it. If Jesus died on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God, to satisfy God's wrath for everyone without exception, then no one will be lost. And some would say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're lost because they refuse to believe. Well, that's true at one level. But why is it that they refuse to believe? Remember, faith is a gift from God purchased by Jesus for his people on the cross. You see, universal atonement in, in, at the bottom, it foundationally doesn't, it teaches that the atonement doesn't actually atone for the sins of anyone for whom Christ died. It only makes everyone savable. It is a satisfaction that doesn't actually satisfy the wrath of God in the case of multitudes who persist in rejecting the gospel to the end of their lives. But friends, I would suggest that that dishonors Christ. For if Christ died as a propitiation for everyone without exception, but if not everyone without exception will be saved, 
then Christ is a failure when it comes to those who die lost in their sins. And I find that to be dishonoring to Christ and his gospel. And furthermore, it strips the gospel of comfort for a merely hypothetical atonement, an atonement that merely makes you savable and doesn't actually save you. Well, that's powerless to save you or save anybody for that matter. Everyone uh, must activate their will in order for the atonement to take effect. And that makes basically us our own saviors. Jesus is just our co-pilot then. He's just our helper and not our sovereign and king. But friends, the good news is that Christ is an actual, effectual propitiation for the sins of everyone all over the world who through sovereign grace come to trust in him and him alone for salvation from sin. And you may say, well, pastor, how do I know that the atonement will benefit me? Well, do you trust in Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? We believe in the free offer of the gospel. Christ's atonement is certainly sufficient for all. It is of infinite value. And it is offered to all in the gospel. But it, its purpose is to save those who are God's people, those whom the Father has given to his Son, those who come to believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you're a believer, then the good news is that Jesus didn't just die to make you savable, contingent upon you jumping through some hoops or doing something. He died to actually secure your eternal salvation. What did the angel say uh, to Joseph in Matthew 1.21? You shall call his name Jesus. The name means the Lord is salvation. Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. You shall call his name Jesus for he will what? Say he will save his people from their sins, not he will make salvation available to everyone provided they, you know, he will save his people from their sins. Is Jesus your savior or simply one who helps you to save yourself? That's really what the two options are. He died to actually secure your eternal salvation if you trust in him for your salvation. Dear listener, are you trusting in Christ and his effectual atonement for sin? Do you believe that Christ's death is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins? Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes all who know their sin and know that he is their only hope of salvation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Rest in his finished work, his broken body and his shed blood. And Christian, continue to receive the good news that Christ is your advocate. Christ is your propitiation before the Father. That is good news. Receive it. Believe it. Cling to it. Embrace it today and always. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for the scriptures which reveal Christ to us. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would take the truth that was proclaimed today and may find a lodging place in our souls and bring gospel comfort to us, Lord, and conviction and give us grace, Lord, to walk after a new obedience out of great gratitude for your amazing gift of salvation to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together,
I'd like to read 